0: hi i'm laurie feathers a bookstore owner and writer in dallas texas
1: and i'm sam jordison a publisher from norwich in the uk and this is across the pond
0: a podcast for readers of fiction eager to discover the most discussed and anticipated books on both sides of the atlantic
1: all right let's dive in
0: hello sam how's it going
1: Hey Laurie, I'm all right. I don't know if you can hear, but it's pretty windy here in Norwich. In fact, in most of the UK today, Storm Eunice is hitting us, and we've just had a 122 mile per hour wind off the Isle of Man. So it's
0: wow. Uh, yeah, it's not batten down the hatches. Yeah,
1: really. Yeah, I've, put, I've kind of put the bins in and covered them with stuff so they're not flying around. And it's not quite as windy here as 122 miles an hour, but it's it's getting there.
0: That's some epic level winds for sure. Switching topics totally, uh, you brought to my attention a Twitter that a guy named Jeremy Schneider wrote that got quite a lot of feedback. (laughs) Um, Why don't you tell our audience about that a little bit?
1: Oh, well, this this poor guy, it's... I, at this stage, I feel really sorry for him. So
0: You do? I think so. I don't know. I think he might have been picking a fight. Um,
1: yeah. Well, you know, we all do. Uh, well, we all. I definitely do stupid things on social media. So I kind of, whenever I see this kind of thing, I, I think, thank God it wasn't me. But anyway, <laughs> Jeremy Schneider, on February the 6th, so a few days ago now, but this has been running and running, he tweeted, please know, if you're someone who brings a book to the bar, dot, 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 nobody likes you.
0: <laughs> oh, I would have some thoughts on that. But what kind of response did he get?
1: He got an, an immense response. I'm I'm looking at it now, and he's had four thousand quote tweets. <laughs> wow. Eight hundred and sixty-seven likes. So that's a pretty bad ratio. And then. Endless answers from, <laughs> it looks like the entire book world has descended on him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and did you? Did you respond to I, him?
1: I did not respond. By the time I saw it, it was it was too late. And uh, Ron Charles, the the wonderful, where's he from? The Washington Post.
0: Yes, he's the lead book critic for The Washington Post. Yeah,
1: he'd already got in and kind of done the ultimate. I don't even go to bars tweets.
0: So. <laughs> So um what's the tenor of the response that this guy got?
1: Uh variously bemused, confused, and angry, I would say. I suppose the I mean the the slightly unpleasant thing that some people have read into this tweet is, you know, this is uh this is a guy and is he bothering poor women who are trying to sit in bars and quietly read? Is he one of those bros that uh, just can't stand uh-huh. the sight of a you know a woman being left in peace? And I don't know if that inference is true at all. In fact, later on, he's come back and done a very humble and quite nice apology, saying that essentially he was being mean. Uh, but anyway, the you know the rest of the book world is kind of like. But I go, I go and read books in bars, and certainly I am if I am. In a bar, which isn't very often, I will often take a book with me, almost as a force field of kind of protection. Like, if I'm going to be sitting there by myself, having a book is a good way to... uh protect yourself from unwanted attention.
0: Yeah. I feel like people do that with the phone too. You know, lots of times if people don't want to be necessarily bothered, they'll either pretend that they're on a call and, you know, have their <laughs> their earbuds in, or they'll just be like, you know, eyes stuck on the phone. But I have been known to read at a pub or a bar. I guess most often it happens when I'm waiting for for someone, you know, I'm meeting up with someone and I know that they're not gonna be there for a little bit. I'll take a book out of my bag and open it up. I I really like the experience of reading in a pub or a bar. I, I mean I guess it has it depends on what I'm reading. I mostly like to read with quiet, as you know, because I've had this thing about the the leaf blowers. <laughs> but there is there is something I think that's kind of atmospheric about reading a book when there's a lot of like just not distracted, distracting hustle and bustle. But you know, like the world is happening around you, and you can look out the window and see people walking in and out of the establishment and I mean, and a good, a good glass of wine yeah. goes oh, you're ma- really well. You're making it sound great.
1: <laughs> it sounds really nice. You know, get away from the computers, leave your worries behind for a while, have a glass of wine, read a book. It's sounding good to me.
0: Yeah, I agree. Do you do this often?
1: No, no. I mean, not even before the pandemic would I do it very often, but I would do it. And on holiday, for instance, I'd love doing it. It's really nice. South of France, in a bar, glass of wine, as you say, and a good book. It's just lovely.
0: Yeah, I, I get the sense that our our pal Jeremy Schneider spends a lot of time in bars because I <laughs> will note that his bio on Twitter is, give me a scotch, I'm starving, is kind of <laughs> his, his mantra. He did, I think, if I'm not mistaken, because I, I did, when she sent this to me, kind of got on and read some of the comments, he kind of, he kind of backtracked, right? He kind of, I don't know, what, what, what did he say to excuse himself? Uh,
1: he said, he said a few things that I were actually quite nicely put. So he said, uh, the tweet was mean and he apologized and, you know, bothering people who are minding their own business isn't very nice. And then he got a book and went to a bar and had a read and, uh, He says, I still don't quite get it, but, you know, give him, give him credit for trying.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, sure. It might not be everyone's, you know, this is a bad, you know, metaphor, but a cup of tea, but I like it. More power to those people. I think anytime I see someone in kind of an unexpected place, you know, outside of a library or bookstore, reading a book, it, I don't know, puts a smile on my face. It makes me happy.
1: Yeah. Me too. Yeah. And to, to give more credit to Jeremy Schneider, it's made me think, you know, I'm going to go out there and have a nice bar room read pretty soon. It's reminded me yeah. of kind pleasure.
0: Yeah. It's kind, of, um, it's kind of a temptation now. I think that uh, given that we're recording this on a Friday, you know, maybe <laughs> I'll be heading out too. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about something else, Sam. So your wonderful press, Galley Beggar Press, in addition to publishing really great books every year. You guys have a short story prize that you do annually. You've been doing that now for how many years running?
1: Oh, good question. You're putting me on the spot. I, uh, six, I think, maybe.
0: Okay. Yeah. And you guys just announced your long list. So tell me a little bit about how the short story contest that you guys do work and how many submissions you get. And I'm I mean, just interested to know kind of, uh, I know it sucks up a lot of you and Ellie's time because it's a lot of work.
1: It is a lot of work and a, a lot of reading, but it, it's worth it for, um, for, for for lots of reasons. I mean, financially, it really helps us because there's a £10 entry fee and we get a, a lot of entries and it, it helps keep things afloat. We do also give a lot of entries away. So... Each entry also subsidizes a free entry for you know people who can't afford to pay for whatever reason, and we don't actually ask for reasons. We just trust people, and it's, it's and that's one of the really nice things about the prize. In fact, people no not one person paying the fee has ever complained or questioned that we're you know they're also helping other people, which is lovely.
0: That's uh, really nice. yeah, it
1: makes it feel like a good thing. And so, what can I tell you? We we open it up in the autumn, and Fact, we we need to be late summer. Really, we need to be starting to think about this year, next year already. Entries generally close uh, November. I think it's going to be this year, end of November, and then we have a kind of month where Ellie, in particular, is kind of in pajamas, just reading and reading and reading and reading. We get over a thousand entries now, and
0: wow, yeah,
1: and there's a, a long process of of whittling them down and working out we work out a kind of really really long list and then from there we we go to a a shorter long list that we give to our judges and then they help us decide the actual first long list of 10 books which is where we are except in fact after i finish this recording uh things being well if the storm doesn't get in the way too much cuz electricity is currently going down around the country but we're going to be announcing the shortlist so the three books that have got through Uh, three books, three stories, three
0: authors. That's incredible. Do you get entries from all over or mostly the UK?
1: Yeah, that's another really nice thing, actually. We get them from all over, all over the world. So loads from different parts of Africa. Uh, We get a lot from India in particular, but all over Asia. A few from the US, but actually... Not that many. So US listeners, please, please do enter because I think we need we need more American representation.
0: Come on, US. <laughs> um, we're not doing that well in the Olympics. So let's get some short stories cooking and get them over to the UK to Sam and Ellie.
1: Yes, please. Yes. And quite a few from, from the UK, of course, as well. Yeah.
0: So I would have to imagine that this prize is important and, and a really good recognition for some Really, kind of raw talent. Probably most most of these writers have not been discovered or or had much acclaim yet in their writing careers. But have there been occasions when you guys have have seen a story and you are like, "Oh, if this person would write a story collection, it would be something that we might really be interested in in publishing at Galley Beggar in in book form."
1: Yes, definitely. In fact, that's the thing I meant to say when you were asking me about the prize right at the start, that the thing that is really good for us is it's a great way of finding out about new writers and connecting with all kinds of writers and seeing what they're doing. And there have been, yeah, a lot of writers who we've continued to stay in touch with and uh, to publish sometimes. So to give one quick example, uh Gonzalo Garcia, who wrote an amazing novel for us, "We Are the End." I mean, one of the first times we came across him was on the Short Story Prize. Yeah, so it's a really, it's a really good way for us to connect with talent, to see what's out there, and to start communicating with some some really good writers. Yeah, it's exciting as well in that regard.
0: Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to seeing the the short list and to whittle like over a thousand entries down to three I just can't imagine (laughs) that's got to be just logistically so difficult it's not just you and Ellie judging correct
1: that's right so Ellie and I do the the initial whittling but then really we mainly hand it over to judges so each year we have three judges so this year we've got the fantastic literary critic uh John Self and um Ishikaki, who's a fantastic writer, who actually won the prize a few years ago, so it's really nice to have her. And Erica Wagner, who's an author and and critic as well, so they're they're doing the bulk of the judging for us at that stage. And in fact, I can I can say now we had a a meeting about the shortlist because by the time the podcast goes out, it will be announced, as I say. Uh, And that was really a a fascinating meeting. Lots of back and forth. It was it was really difficult. And in a positive way, because it was difficult, not because we couldn't think of which books deserved to go on the shortlist. I keep saying books.
0: (laughs) Stories, that's all right. I'm following. (laughs) Uh, Not because we couldn't
1: think of which stories to go on the shortlist, but because it it was really hard to, to jettison some. So there were some that came really close that, didn't quite make the cut and that was the painful thing um, so it felt positive though that you know the stories that are on there we think are fantastic and we also know there are other fantastic stories that almost almost made it
0: yeah well that's that's really cool and I just wanted to ask you because we talked about it last time through all of this busyness, you're also still participating in the Shakespeare and Company. Big Ulysses read,
1: right? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And I'm partly doing it, of course, with a, an eye to our Dostoevsky read coming up, but it's, right. I'm just really enjoying it. So every weekday, they're putting out a podcast episodes uh, of people reading from Ulysses, uh, a different person each day. And it turns out to be a really fantastic way to engage with the book. And it's a lot of fun who knew. <laughs> Ulysses turns out to be a great book. Can you imagine that? And there's just so much depth to it, so much going on that I'm finding it really fascinating.
0: Well, we have a big Ulysses display at the bookstore right now, and there are all kinds of like new editions, kind of artistic illustrated editions that came out, you know, for the for the anniversary. So it's been um yeah, people people are buying it. I'm saying more power to them. It's it's an undertaking for sure, but but I'm glad you're enjoying The Shakespeare and Company. It sounds like a really great experience.
1: Yeah, it's good. I'd recommend it to anyone, yeah.
0: All right, Sam, good talking to you. You too, Laurie. Hello, and welcome to Across the Pond. Today is the kickoff of our Konker Karamazov collective read. And I'm so happy to welcome back to the show Lan Samantha Chang, who will be joining us for the entirety of the collective read of The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Welcome Samantha. Hi, Lori. And Sam, welcome to you too.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much.
0: Sam's going to be our kind of reluctant reader on this one. We're going to be dragging him along on our 12 to 15 pages a day, but but he's going to love it like the rest of you are as well. So, to kick off today's conversation, Samantha, which is kind of a preview of the March 1st start of The Collective Read, I wanted to ask you about your first experience with the Brothers Karamazov.
2: Sure. Like many people, I very my very first encounter with the book was a non-starter. I thought about reading it when I was in high school, took a look at it. It looked really thick, sort of paged through it and thought, I can't do this. And then I didn't touch it again until pretty late in life. I was 40 when a student of mine told me how much he liked the book because he was a Russian literature major. And I thought, here's a kid reading it in Russian. I should at least try to read this in English. And just without really thinking about it, I went out and purchased a new translation, the Volonsky Pivier translation. And I was just completely taken by it really, as soon as I started reading it. And it's hard to explain what attracted me so much to it, except that there's a really lively sense of voice in this translation. The characters are always talking to each other. And this really spoke to me, haha, um, because I had grown up in a very verbal family and I was always really attracted to situations when people talk a lot. And yet the kind of writing I had done up until that point was very low key, not minimalist, but like very, very, I would say it's kind of soft spoken writing, like understated writing. People were always saying that my work was, quote, quiet, unquote, and quote, subtle, unquote. And I I understood that. And I understood the value of writing quiet and subtle work. And I, I do like my first books, but I always felt the entire time, I was sort of thinking about my material that I would love to try to write about a family that was more similar to the family where I grew up, where people were upset about things. And sometimes they shouted and sometimes they got into long monologues and fights. And I mean, some of my earliest memories are of listening to my father sort of shouting through the house about his various sources of frustration and stress and unhappiness um, about being here in the united states and uh, uh because of various things that would happen I, I i i vividly remember him coming home from work and talking i want to be stupid if i were stupid i could you know not care about this there's <laughs> politics at work and you know or he was just a very dramatic guy and i thought where can i find a fictional model you know a model in fiction to sort of create the emotional range that covered what happened in in our family when I was growing up. And I thought, this is this is it. This is incredible. The characters in this book are just over the top a large amount of the time. And they're also very changeable. I mean, there are a few of them. The ser- servant, Grigory, is that how we pronounce his? Yes, Grigory is like very, very steady as a character. So there's some, and he's a good character. He's a He's a decent person. So there are some characters that are, provide ballast in, in this book, but everybody else is pretty pretty freewheeling and emotional. And I, I just completely related to the book.
0: There's a lot of differences, obviously, in the setting of your book rural Wisconsin and the Brothers Karamazov and also the time period you know your your book takes place in contemporary times and the Brothers Karamazov of course takes place in the you know mid 19th century but i i wondered whether or not there were some elements of the book that you consciously decided you know that just doesn't translate to today's United States and so i i need to change that up a bit in my book
2: Sure. I mean, first, I could say a few of the things about that book that I did translate that were unexpected. Um, one of the interesting things about the novel of Brothers Karamatsov is that it takes place in a, in a sort of sprawling, small, sort of city town. I mean it it's it's based on where Dostoevsky himself was living at the time, I believe. But you get the sense that it's a town, but that there's a ton of space in it. And the characters are always walking through it and wandering through it, getting from one thing to another. And I actually adapted that for my novel. I I wanted to set it in a small Midwestern city. Not, you know, a city with a huge population, but not as small as the town in the Dostoevsky novel, because I wanted to create, recreate a community of others, you know, of Chinese people in this town. And I knew it had to be a certain size in order to do that. But I did create this kind of wandering path through the book by using the alleyways that exist in a lot of these Midwestern cities. Um, These alleyways... You know, I'm actually looking at one now. I'm in my office in Iowa City and I can see out the window and there's a path that goes it's like a little road that goes beneath my window that is not an official road in Iowa City. And it actually intersects with another road that runs behind our houses. And these kinds of paths were built, I always thought for horses, but I think what they really were, I mean, they were built in the early 20th century, a lot of them. When these houses were put up, these frame wooden houses, but they were built for people's back business. So there's a kind of backside to the town. My town and a lot of midwestern towns, where in the day ice was delivered, uh, utilities were dealt with, people parked to their vehicles, and you know, non-official business like non-front business took place behind the house. And I found this completely interesting. It's something I got really obsessed with while I was writing my book. Um, lo and behold, when I'm revisiting the Brothers Karamazov, I realized that the characters are always going by the back way. There's a back way in that town where you can go without being seen. And for my book, that back way sort of took over and became a metaphor for the entire part of these characters' lives that is not public, which is another deep fascination of mine. This idea of a front story, the story that you show people, your face, as they say in Chinese culture, and then the backstory, you know, not backstory in the tri- traditional fictional sense, but the story behind the story, the story that's taking place in the back alley. You know, there is a strong parallel there between the brothers Karamazov and my book, And I also think, though, as you pointed out, that there are a lot of elements of the Brothers Kermatza that I could not adopt to my book. You know, it's really interesting because my strategy of writing my book was to put aside reading the Brothers Kermatza for like many years, like six years, because I had internalized it so much that I thought it would influence me and sort of overpower what I was trying to do, frankly, because I was so in love with this book. And so I put it aside and there was a period of struggle where I felt that I couldn't write an homage to the book because religion plays such a powerful part in the book. You know, the translators described one of its early models as a a hagiography, kind of like a life of the saints. And it really does describe, in my opinion, the sort of idea of Dostoevsky's that the Christian religion was the identity of the soul of Russia. Do you think I put that in a way that he would agree with, Laurie?
0: Yes. Yeah. I think I, think I do agree with that.
2: Yeah. It, the book really makes that point over and over. I mean, it's not shy about making that point. And I thought, I don't think I can make that point in our today's society. I think that there are a lot of religions in American society and that, you know, religion plays... I think, a powerful role for some parts of our society, like a very powerful role, but that I didn't feel that I could adapt that and create my contemporary community in quite the same way. And so I had a church and I had a temple, but I didn't try to make them sort of argue the argument of the book in the same way that Dostoevsky did. Much as I love the way he writes about it, I really do.
0: Yeah, there's of course the famous part of the Brothers Karamazov, the Grand Inquisitor, that I think Samantha, you and I both have just recently reread again, and yeah. wow, what a what a powerful piece of writing, but also you know kind of dark, and I really <laughs> I really like what you did with the family Chow in terms of. I think making this these questions about spirituality and good and bad make make sense in an American environment today. It it I guess I'm not surprised that you felt like there that really that kind of Russian deep religiosity and and Christian foundation really didn't doesn't translate well.
2: I mean the arguments in the Grand Inquisitor are very real. They're set in a time hundreds of years before the Brothers Karamazov story takes place. And one of the Brothers encounters or recounts, I'm sorry, one of the Brothers recounts an extraordinary story when Christ comes back to earth and has a conversation with the Grand Inquisitor. And it it feels so real. I feel when I'm reading it that I could be in history. And one of the reasons it feels real to me is that it's told in a book that is itself set in history. It's not just set in the mid 19th century, but it's also set in a time before it was written by, you know, 15 years, 12 years. And so there's this sense of, I don't know, the past and the history of of European Christianity that's very present
1: and real, kind of wonderful. So do you feel like you're able to connect with this Russian soul and religion through the book?
2: Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, growing up, let's see, I grew up in a sort of semi-Buddhist family in Appleton, Wisconsin. My parents were born in China and, you know, didn't speak English until they came to this country. And so I would say I have to stretch in order to connect to the Russian soul and, but i do it I did it because I'm a reader, and I think one of the extraordinary things about this book is that it's loaded with footnotes it's loaded with little cultural asides there There are references to you know plays and poems and and philosophers and politicians that you don't necessarily have access to from contemporary America and yet as a reader, you can use that power of imagination you have to live through what the characters are living through so the in in a lot of ways, I did feel like I was stretching to connect, and that the the sort of moment of contact was kind of ecstatically exciting for me i mean it's It's so rare that you get to go to another place in time, and I think that's what reading is for. A lot of people who talked about my book to me who are not. Chinese American have told me that it made them understand more about, you know, people other than themselves and that they felt like they had an entry into the book because it takes place in a Chinese restaurant. And how many people um, have a Chinese restaurant that they set foot into on a regular basis and don't know a whole lot about? And I think that sort of inadvertently, I guided people into the book by sort of providing the one cultural aspect of Chinese American life that they had some experience with. And I would say that Dostoevsky, by creating a family of three brothers, creates a dynamic that many people can relate to also, that there's the family um, you know, the difficult father. Difficult is an understatement for the father. I think that that father reached out to me when I was reading the book and I thought this person is so much like my father. Much as, you know, my father's not my father's not immoral or actually my father was not immoral. He's passed away when I was writing my book, but he's not an immoral person, but he had he was so dramatic. He was such a yeller. <laughs>
0: On the issue of relatability, I think Dostoevsky, and this has been the case in all of the novels by him that I've, I've encountered, feelings and reactions are so big. And so often feel exaggerated. I look at, and it's not just the women in the Brothers Karamazov, but in particular Lise, the girl that was the youngest son of Lyosha's best friend growing up and now has a crush on him she acts almost in a way that's incomprehensible to me. I mean, I, I don't really understand ever being quite like that when I was that age. And also the fiancé in the Brothers Karmazov, of the eldest brother, Katerina, she kind of goes off on these just kind of extravagant, crazy, fainting spells reactions. And there's there's almost like a a hysteria to the way Dostoevsky builds his characters that is over the top, I think, and sometimes I think might make it difficult for today's readers to relate to the characters. What do you think?
2: This is so interesting. I mean, your your comment is so interesting to me. One, that American readers feel so desperately this need to relate to characters. (laughs) You know, I think it's possible... To read a book in which you think the characters are just out to lunch or just completely not like you, I think the the what's required is to think I don't I I have permission not to relate to them completely. I I get permission not to relate to these characters. Um, I I'm sad to say. I mean, I'm curious to know, Lori, what you found unrelatable about the characters in the Brothers Karamazov.
0: I just feel like the way that they react to their situations seems very extremely visceral. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of rationality into or a measured response to anything. It's just kind of one critic that I that I read called Dostoevsky's characterizations, you know, and the and the narrative kind of like a volcano. Like there's always there's always this like Heightened volatility to everything, to all of the interpersonal interactions.
2: And when Lisa Lisa falls in love, well, okay, gets a crush on Alyosha. Yeah, I don't know. I think she loves him and writes him a letter. You think the letter is extreme? She writes him this extreme letter.
0: I don't know that the letter is extreme, but her kind of like back and forth between like telling him the letter's a joke. No, it's not a joke. And and blushing and crying and and then we've got her like rather ridiculous mother hovering around trying to like referee the whole thing. It's just I guess I would say I, I think that there's a lot of exaggeration in it from my perspective, but it's funny as well. It's funny in a good way.
2: Yeah. I mean when she says it's a joke, it's not a joke. That reminds me very much of watching my daughter's fourteen, and I've seen some girls her age. Not my daughter because she's a very sort of straight-on person, but I've seen a lot of girls sort of say "ha ha," like you know how people write "lol" on their emails "ha ha ha," like I don't really mean this, but I but I've actually just said it. I feel like yes, it's an exaggerated version of that. Why is it exaggerated? I mean, I, I do think that Dostoevsky Dostoevsky had in his life experiences that went to the extremes. And I guess we can talk about it later when when people are actually reading the book, but his life was full of extremes. And he lived in a time in which things like life and death were very different than they are now. Although I would say that the people have had a taste of it in the last couple of years. Back in the day when Dostoevsky was writing, a lot of diseases were not understood or curable. So you could get something and then just not have any way to fix it. Ironically, I read the book and found the characters relatable. <laughs> they wear their emotions right out there. And their emotions feel to me to be very human. There's a very extreme range of feeling and people are constantly changing their feelings. They're very mercurial. But I believe that on with every feeling, there's a flip side of it that does exist within us. And the Dusty FC is just bringing it out into the into the light where we can see it and read about it. Also, you know, my dad went through an awful lot when he was growing up. Both of my parents did. It was because they were born in a bad century in a very turbulent place. Um, 20th century China was filled with uh, war and invasion and occupation and political turmoil. I think maybe 11 years before my father was born, the Qing dynasty was overthrown. And then, so if you can imagine the overthrow of thousands of years of dynastic tradition taking place within the lived lives, recently lived lives of your parents, and then growing up in a sort of fledgling republic that was heading toward an invasion from a hostile uh, neighbor, Japan. This is the way that my dad grew up, making sense of the world. And he had to leave home when he was 18 and walk across the country in order to get his education because the Japanese did not allow the subjects to be taught that the students were interested in. And so some of the universities just moved west where there was um, where the country was still. Uh, purely Chinese, in order to get their education. He had to walk, he had to hitch trains and rides along with the other people in the university. He went hungry. Eventually he left China never to return, never to see his parents again. My mother also grew up during the war and she told me when I was a very small child uh, that when she was little, she would walk through the street and see men hanging from trees dead people. And one of the first things she taught me was how to avoid a rabid dog. Apparently, if if you run into a rabid dog, um, there's tricks you can use to make sure that you don't get bitten. Because at that time, of course, rabies was a very much more dangerous than it is now. The treatments for rabies were not as readily available as they are now. So the, the extreme of experience, I think, for my parents was it had a wide scope. And so there was a lot of description of things that I, looking out my window at my calm Wisconsin small town, did not believe to be possible, except I knew it was true because they told me. And I fought with them a lot and said, the world is peaceful now. Look, we're in a we're in a very peaceful world. There's plenty to eat. I don't have to become a doctor in order to survive the war, which was sort of what they told me to do, <laughs> and my sister's. And it seemed to me that that kind of awareness of every moment was present to a certain extent in the household where I grew up, and that I felt a relief reading in Dostoevsky about the extremity of emotion that the characters had, because it was out there. And, and it was in some ways Made clear to me, almost explained to me, the extremes that the characters go through. I could understand why they were feeling the way they were feeling. Is that, That's I mean, fascinating. Is a time, yeah, it's a time before contemporary psychology, for example.
0: Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting as we journey through the book and hear reactions from readers to kind of get feedback on, you know, whether which of these characters feel relatable, and if any of them don't, and I think it'll be an interesting discussion. Let's talk about structure of the novel a little bit. So The Brothers Karamazov opens with a two-page note from the author. This is not a note from Dostoevsky, so to speak, but it's the narrator of the novel. Yeah it it's a fictional
2: author he created this character who is a member of the town and knows all of everyone's business uh to to do, to tell us the story and he basically discredits himself very early on by you know by making it clear that he's not particularly reliable just by the way he talks and and particularly in the trial um there's a trial in the in the later part of this novel, he says he's not even sure if he's relating events in the right order. Mm-hmm. I was very attached to and taken by this narrator when I wrote my book. In fact, I can remember early drafts that attempted a first-person narrator. I call it first omniscient. It's a first-person narrator who knows everything, knows things that there's no way that, that he or she could have witnessed. And in this particular case, the reason it's possible for Dostoevsky to use this device has is is that the story takes place in this small town, and everybody knows what's going on and he's just a member of the town in my novel i as I said, I tried to do this multiple times and then dropped it because I understood ultimately that I would have to in my book have come up with a narrator who was either one of the parents or one of the children. I mean, one of the things, one of the constraints about writing immigrant work is that the parents and the children have very different life experiences. And so the way they see everything is very different. Um, If I'd had a first person narrator who was a parent, this person would know, you know, parts of Asia, they would have been born in another country um, and they would see everything that happened in the story very differently from the way that it would be seen by, say, a member of the children's generation who only know the United States and were born here, at least in this particular town. There was no character I could think of who could encompass the experiences of of all the characters in the way that this anonymous townsperson in Dusk Dafsky does. And so I adopted this kind of fake objectivity narrator in my rendition of the trial, who is writing a blog as an assignment for her class, for her journalism class, and is supposed to be objective about everything she sees, but of course knows all the gossip, knows what um, is happening and what has happened, and is eventually unable to hold to the blog format and breaks down into her own opinion. That was my way of, of hewing to the narrator to some extent. I also created this voice, this community voice that speaks at the beginning of the first and second sections of my book. The community voice is in the third person in my book, and it it's basically a knowledgeable omniscience. I ended up with a knowledgeable third-person omniscience um, instead of using the first-person Dostoevsky narrator.
0: That's great. I think that in our first interview with you, You expressed the notion that Dostoevsky as a writer broke all of the rules of the contemporary writer's workshop kind of of style. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
2: Okay. First of all, I, I would like to say here that as the director of the Iowa Writer's Workshop, I do not subscribe to these rules. I do not think that they're necessary in order to write good fiction. And I find them at this point, like, sort of a stone in my shoe. (laughs) I just keep (laughs) hearing them over and over. Um, One of them would be show, don't tell. Okay. In fact, my daughter just came home from school with the paper that she wrote for a class. I mean, a piece that she wrote for a class. And one of the comments of the teacher was show, don't tell. And I just felt this severe annoyance um, in the back of my mind that I could not describe to my daughter because I thought it would just, Send her in a in a direction of of frustration instead of uh, obedience, which is sort of what you have to do to get by in school. <laughs> in the Brothers to Karamazov, everyone is telling. There's a lot of there's a lot of scenes, but people are just going on monologuing in those scenes. Or there's a lot of description and telling, a, a lot of narration. I find that scenes are great, but they can also exist alongside a healthy amount of telling. Okay, so that's one. Two, understated prose. I think this is less obvious now because there are different kinds of popular writing, um, spoken word, for example. I think that when I was a kid, and when I say kid, I mean when I was in my 20s being taught to write in writing workshops, we were told very clearly that we should not use words, (laughs) omit needless words. It's in Strunk and White. And I love Strunk and White and, you know, um, have loved it for years, but I think that taken to an extreme, omitting needless words can create prose that sounds very similar to other prose. And Dostoevsky doesn't know this rule. He never read Strunk (laughs) and White. uses a ton of words. He uses just... He's just very, very, very extreme in his use of words. Uh, another one, don't use exclamation points unless it is a true exclamation. There are 2,000-plus exclamation points in the Brothers Karamazov. Did you count my mom, them? Yeah, somebody I know counted. A, a friend wow, of my I'm impressed. Yeah, it's like 2,300. My friend counted because I... I had noticed that my book has you know a lot of exclamation points and i remembered that i was told not to use them one of my old professors told his son you can only you're only allowed to use two exclamation points in your entire
0: life my goodness i know that's rigid well it's it's
2: basically saying don't have unnecessary feelings don't go over the top don't be melodramatic I mean, for all we know, readers are unable to relate to characters who express their feelings because they've read so many books in which characters don't.
0: <laughs> yes, good point. Yeah, so
2: I liked it. I liked that freedom of expression, and, and I wanted it to be in my book as well because it, it does in some ways remind me of the house where I grew up.
1: I've edited out a few explanation marks. I have to say I'm guilty of that. <laughs> but, you know, they've got a count. <laughs> I that sure sure.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just have this vivid memory of a time when I was with my dad in a car in California. He and my mom had come out to visit me and my dad hates being in a car when he's not driving. He wants to be in control of the car. Sorry I'm talking about him in the present tense because even though he's gone because he's like such a real person in my mind. So he's next to me in the driver in the passenger seat just fuming with stress. <laughs> and Or just, I don't know if the word is fuming, but whatever. I am trying to sort of drive on one of these big, it's like a suburban avenue with everyone who's there has driven it a million times. And I'm trying to find this Chinese grocery store and I have to pull off the road and wait in a parking lot because I don't know where I am and I have to figure it out. This is back in the time before everybody had it on their phone. And so I pull off the road and my dad like bangs on the, dashboard and yells I'm going to die (laughs) (laughs) you know he's like he just feels this horrible panic you know being in this car driven by his daughter who clearly doesn't know where she is and he's in a strange place and you know I I think that that extreme anxiety of his um it just it just It infused my life when I was growing up and I can completely see some of it happening in Dostoevsky. And it's one of the reasons why I can relate to the book. I'm not saying that you have to have a dad like this in order to read this book. (laughs) You can imagine a a dad like this. And you know, you can imagine a patriarchal, tyrannical, difficult person as a leader,
0: (laughs) I think that it's important to let the listeners know who maybe are not familiar with the Brothers Karamazov, but at the heart of it, the Brothers Karamazov is a murder mystery.
2: Oh yeah. Thanks for remembering to mention that.
0: (laughs) And it's a really compelling murder mystery and Dostoevsky keeps you guessing on this one for, for quite a while, but the motivations of the characters kind of play into this, Extreme aggrandizement of of feelings and emotions, and the appetites of the patriarch of the family, and the eldest son for sex, for food, for money, are very much are very much brought out in in the book. In as we said, in in an extreme way. But I think I think it's indicative of the enormity of of their appetites they're they're called many times through the book sensualists, and yes, Yvonne the middle brother even at one point talks about their carnivorous Karmazovian kind of appetites
2: yes, he's always using the word carnivorous, yeah. It was another one of those words that i that I realized when I was rereading the book after I'd written my book that I had somehow unconsciously put into my book. I mean in my book, there's a scene where these dogs have been deprived of meat because they live with Buddhists, and one of my characters actually throws a bunch of meat into a pack of these dogs and they like rip it, you know they get into this feeding frenzy over it <laughs> and I realized that, oh, I've got that in my book too. I thought of it as more omnivorous, yeah. But but Dostoevsky is like carnivorous.
0: Yes, I guess maybe I don't know carnivorous. Maybe brings to mind more, you know, just like the excessive kind of almost lust. Uh, yeah, and talking lust. about lust, let's talk about the femme fatales in both oh, your okay. book and in uh, in the Brothers Karmazov because you have Brenda, of course. And then you've got uh, Grushenka in the Brothers Karmazov. and I wondered whether there were things about about Grushenka that you that you didn't want Brenda to be. Brenda seems, I guess, I like Brenda in your book. I guess I don't quite know what to think about Grushenka in the Brothers Karamazov.
2: <laughs> well, well, I mean, one thing you could say about Grushenka is she's a strong character, and I'm grateful to the author for creating strong characters in this book, because he could have not done that. He could have gone the other way and they could be boring, but they're never boring. I mean, I could not create a character like Grushenka in my book for a lot of reasons. Society has changed. Brenda is very sexy. And that is what one of the things that you learn about Grushenka uh, the minute that you learn about her in the Brothers Karamazoo. Brenda Brenda's sexy. She's, she's the object of desire for the oldest son in the same way. Um, but she's got kind of her own story in this book. She's living, she says at one point that she's, you know, spending down her, she's living off her credit cards she works at the restaurant as a host and server, but she but she wants a different life than the one that she has. She's fixed up her place to make it look really nice, but she knows she's charged a lot of it. And in her dreams, she would marry somebody who could take care of her, and she knows that she could marry anyone she set her mind to, basically, because she has you know very attractive nature. <laughs> But she ends up, in my book, falling in love with Dago, the oldest son. And one of the things that she realizes and knows is that if she's with him, she will always have to work. She will have to continue to work at the restaurant or to do something because he's not good with money. He's always spending everything he has, and he doesn't have the potential to earn a lot of money. So she has a conflict. I don't know what Grushenka's conflict actually is. Brenda's conflict is that, I mean, okay, let me just put it this way. Brenda realizes in my, in my novel that she actually enjoys working. And that that's her turning point, I think. I think I've given my character more of an arc and more of a sort of grounded set of concerns. My character also, I think, is a human being apart from the way that men see her. I agree with that. I actually am very fond of Brenda. She at first was unclear to me and then as I worked on the book I started to know and like her. Same thing with Catherine. My my Catherine is is different from the Russian Katerina. The interesting thing about her is that she declares faithfulness to Mitya the oldest son even though he's shown her none and that their relationship is built on a kind of misunderstanding involving her extreme pride. Um, Her pride is making her stay attached to this person who doesn't want her. And in my book, I had to change all of that because, you know, I think when I first started working on the book, uh, Catherine was a little closer to Katerina. But as I continued on, Catherine developed a really strong reason for wanting to be connected to Dago's family, to, to him and his family, that I became quite interested in and did a lot of research about and talked to people. And she became very human to me to the point where it, when I when I decided to include some of the points of view of the female characters in my novel, Catherine was was the one that I really wanted to write from. And she was a lot of fun.
0: So, Sam, as we close out this episode that will air just before we start the collective read. Answer us honestly whether we've we've intrigued you enough to want to read along with us.
1: <laughs> now now you're putting me on this one. Yes, of course you have. No, you you certainly have. Uh I think you had me at Russian Soul, but um I'm uh I I'm I'm definitely in. There's there's clearly so much going on. There's so much to think about, both in terms of you know how the book is gonna be. Well, let's use the word relatable, but how it's going to feel? I get the impression that it's a very immersive experience, but also an experience where you're immersed in something that feels very different to to what we're used to. And what else can I tell you? I'm di- I'm not, I'm in for the murder mystery for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, for the variously attractive and unattractive characters. And <laughs> I very much, I very much agree with the principle that um, you don't have to be able to relate to people to find them interesting. So, yes, <laughs> my my dog is chiming in on that one. I don't know if you heard him, but
0: Cyrus <laughs> <serious laughs> agrees totally. There
2: are dogs in the Brothers Karamazov, also.
1: Oh that's great. Good, better.
0: Yeah, better. like in my novel, <laughs>
2: my novel has a ton of dogs, and and the Brothers Karamazov has very significant dog characters character
0: one more reason to read sam uh
1: one more reason to read. well so i
0: can tell no i'm saying the i'm saying the dogs the dogs are one more reason to read
1: i I was going to come up with a good one though (laughs) which is
0: (laughs) oh do you you have a good one
1: so i can i can i can boast about it of course which is (laughs) the entirely shallow and terrible reason to read it but, you know...
0: To boast about it.
1: Yeah, I'm not going to boast about it, but I am yes. going to feel... A, I'm going to feel... Let's put this in better terms. I'm going to feel a certain amount of pride, I think, in that, you know, I have come to terms with such an important book and a book that means so much and a book I have been unable to read in the past. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting through that. Awesome.
0: All right, guys. Well, really looking forward to the start of this. We'll be posting daily on the Across the Pond Twitter feed hashtag conquer Karamazov. Thank you, Samantha, for joining us again.
2: Oh, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. I'm looking forward to this. Me too. Me too.